If you need a Bible, these brothers have come forward. They're going to make their way to the back, and they will get you a Bible. If you need one, just get their attention. Those are marked at Luke chapter 2, so you won't have to fumble around to find that. Luke 2 and the Christmas story this morning. This week we celebrate the day that God came to earth. And that day is a watershed event in all human history. Now to say that the birth of Jesus Christ is important in the extreme is not just preacher talk. The truth is that event divides all history and even our calendar recognizes it. Today is December 21, 2014 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And the years before the coming of God to earth are marked by that event as well, B.C., before Christ. So it's clearly an important event, but its celebration has at least two dangers. One is that it's quite old and therefore it's susceptible to revision over time. As we've celebrated Christmas now for over 2,000 years, it would be easy for us to forget that this is not merely a traditional holiday that we celebrate with family. It is that, but it is not only or it is not even mostly about that. Christmas is about an event, God coming to earth, that really happened. And so to ensure that we remember that the birth of Christ was a real historical event, the Bible gives us the details, the time, the people, the circumstances, all that surrounded it. But that leads to another potential danger. We can focus on the details and then miss the real hero of the story. You see, while that first Christmas involved lots of people, like an emperor, and a king, and an innkeeper, and Mary, and Joseph, and shepherds, and angels. The real hero of the story is the God who orchestrated all of this. And this God is our Savior. So while the Christmas story tells us about a lot of people, the most important thing it does is it tells us about God. And that Christmas is ultimately about God is seen in verse 14 of Luke chapter 2. We sing during Christmas time, and we have already this morning in Latin, Gloria in excelsis, Deo. That is, as verse 14 says, glory to God in the highest. You see, friends, Christmas involves people, but Christmas is about God. Christmas tells us what God is like, and we're going to see what God is like from Luke 2 today. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you again for the blessedness of this season and the reason for which we celebrate it. We thank you that God the Son has come to earth. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for what he accomplished. And we thank you for the application of his work to us in what we call salvation. And therefore, we have a relationship with you. Lord, we want to then understand you better, and we want to reflect you more clearly. We ask you then to help us with both of those today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We've supplied for you an outline for today's message on the back of your program. Normally it's inserted as a separate uh, uh, insert, but today it's on the back of your program. So I encourage you to take a look at that. And the first thing we see about the character of God in the Christmas story is this, that the preparation for Jesus' birth shows God's control. 
The preparation for Jesus' birth shows God's control. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 begins this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. So what were those days like when Christ was born? What kinds of events were taking place in the world to which Jesus came? Verse 1 mentions that Caesar Augustus mentions Caesar Augustus because he was the Roman emperor. And so in God showing his control of his world in the preparation for the birth of Jesus, he showed that control a number of ways, one of which is, I say in your outline, control of people. It showed control of people. Caesar Augustus is mentioned in verse 1, but Caesar Augustus was not his real name. His real name was Gaius Octavius. Caesar Augustus was his title. There had been other emperors. Julius Caesar was the first. In fact, Gaius Octavius was Julius Caesar's great nephew. But every other emperor who had gone before him had to answer to the Roman Senate. Augustus answered to no one. He was the first emperor in the true sense of that word. The power of Rome had been removed from the people. The power of Rome had been removed from military governors. It had been removed from the Senate and had been completely given to one man. His word was now law. His slightest whim was carried out without question. And this man's desires were imposed upon the entire world. That title, Augustus, is important. When he came to power and all power in Rome was placed at his disposal, the question was, as Caesar, what title would he assume? He could have chosen a title like dictator, but apparently that was insufficient. King did not fit the bill because, after all, the world had been filled with petty little rulers called kings. And so he embraced the title Augustus, meaning the revered one. It was a title with religious overtones. And in fact, in just a few decades, the emperors of Rome would be worshipped as gods. Now, many of you have heard the saying that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Augustus embodied the truth of that statement. So in those days, the world was apparently ruled by an absolute emperor in Rome. Now, I say apparently because it was not really. You see, friends, from God's perspective, history, the things that take place in time, are just a speck of time between two eternities. And God is orchestrating the events of earth, including the decree of this monarch, Augustus, to accomplish his, God's, purposes. 650 years before what Luke calls in Luke 2, those days. 650 years prior to Augustus issuing that decree that a census be taken for the purpose of taxation, a prophet named Micah predicted in the first part of your Bible. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. An Augustus decree that went out throughout the world, that all the world should be taxed, and then Therefore, all should present themselves for the census. It set in people in motion in obedience to his command. Masses of people made their way to the towns of origin to register. Now, for Joseph and Mary, that meant going to Bethlehem. 
Because according to verse 4 of Luke chapter 2, Joseph belonged to the house and line of David. And King David was born in Bethlehem about a thousand years before. But behind the decree of Caesar Augustus and the masses of people making their way back to the towns of their origin, the reason behind it all is that our God had declared that Christ would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. So the story of those days is not really about the emperor who's seated on a throne in Rome. Caesar Augustus, for all of his power, was nothing more than a bit player in the plan of God. You see, friends, everybody works for God, whether they know it or not, whether they want to or not. And that's why the Bible says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. And the Bible says in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Do you get upset about politics? Do you get worried about who's in power? Whether it's Barack Obama or George Bush or Vladimir Putin or some jihadist in the Middle East or in Middle America, friends, our God is at all times in control. And he moved heaven and earth, literally, to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem and Jesus to the world. So good work, Augustus, O revered one. Thanks for coming. Christmas is about God. And the preparation for Jesus' birth shows us that God is in control of people. But it shows us that not only is God in control of people like Caesar Augustus, but also, I say in your outline, it showed God's control of politics. It showed God's control of people, but it also showed God's control of politics. Now, in in verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, Luke says, In those days, Caesar Augustus, in those days, Rome was at peace. There was something known as the Pax Romana, that is, the peace of Rome. One of the many temples in Rome was dedicated to their god, Janus. It was through the gates of the temple of Janus that the Roman soldiers would march as an army as they would set out to war. And when they marched out, the gates were left open until they returned home. And when there was war, then the gates were always open. When there was peace, the gates were closed. In those days, the gates were closed. Rome was at peace. You say, well, that's a good thing. Rome was at peace. Well, when you understand how it achieved that universal peace, it's not so great. Because the reason Rome had peace was that its subjects throughout the empire never dared speak out against the despot who sat upon the throne. They never dared to call their souls their own. They had been, in fact, bludgeoned into submission because of the power of a tyrant. It was a dark time. In those days, Caesar Augustus sat upon the throne and there was peace in Rome because he had bludgeoned the empire into submission. But even the peace of Rome was not all negative from God's perspective because God used it like he uses all things for his purposes. And he used it to the advantage of Christianity and the spread of the gospel. The peace of Rome meant in the years after Jesus' earthly ministry 
that the first Christian evangelists were able to travel with predictability because they wouldn't encounter some skirmish where they were going because nobody was fighting. The wealth of Rome created roads on which those evangelists could travel. Those roads were so well constructed that some of them exist to this very day. The political system of Rome did have advantages for those who were its citizens. And in fact, you find in the book of Acts in your Bible, the great apostle Paul appealing to Caesar because Paul was a Roman citizen. So that first Christmas showed God's control. It showed God's control of people. It showed God's control of politics. And I say thirdly in your outline. It showed God's control of policy. People and politics and policy. Verse 1 again says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now as I've already alluded to, the purpose of that census was to create a tax roll. Augustus issued this decree to get money. But God had him issue this decree to get Mary to Bethlehem. As you think about it, Joseph had to go by order of the emperor, as did everyone else, to the town of their origin to participate in the census for the purpose of taxation. Joseph had to go. But have you ever asked yourself the question, why did he take Mary? It's quite plausible that the reason was because relations in Nazareth had become, let's say, too complicated. You remember that there was scandal surrounding the pregnancy of, of Mary. And now that she was some months along in her pregnancy, it may have been actually unsafe for Mary to be in Nazareth. But whatever the reason, God used that decree for Joseph and Mary to get to Bethlehem. Whatever the reason that Joseph decided to take Mary with him, the policy of Augustus served God's purpose and his plan. And so the preparation for Jesus' birth shows God's control. Now, before we move on, let me just say, friends, that God who was in control 2,000 years ago is in control today. And he's in control of the events of your life. So what is it that you came into this room worried about, anxious about? Our God is in control, and you need to be reminded of that at this Christmas season. But that first Christmas teaches us something else about the character of God. I say, secondly, in your outline... The place of Jesus' birth shows God's love. God's love. Now, when I say the place, I'm not talking about the town, but the actual place within the town. First, they had to get to the town, Bethlehem, and then they'd find the place. Verse 4 of Luke chapter 2 tells us of their coming to town. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, how did Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem? Well, if you get the Christmas story from the Christmas card industry, then you will say they traveled on a donkey. Do you know the Bible actually says nothing about a donkey? In fact, only rich people at that time owned a donkey. And we know that Joseph and Mary were poor because after the birth of Jesus, they gave the offering of the poor at the temple. The first part of your Bible had prescribed that. People were to bring an offering of a lamb, but if they were too poor to own a lamb, 
they could bring two doves or a pigeon. In fact, down in verse 24 of Luke chapter 2, it says, They offered a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, the offering of the poor. Joseph and Mary had no means of transportation. They may have, they may have had to walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In any case, it was 60 miles of difficult terrain. Now, we can travel 60 miles in an hour today. Um, Sandra Gorham can travel 60 miles in half an hour. I've seen, I've seen her drive. <laughs> but in those days, under the best of conditions, even with transportation, it was a three-day journey. And when they arrived, we find that the only place for them was with the animals. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. When the time for Jesus' birth came, his family was unable to find a place designed for humans. So they had to take refuge from the elements with the animals. Now, very early tradition tells us that it was a cave, but we know that whatever type of shelter it was, it was where animals were kept because it was a manger, and a manger was a feeding trough. Now, think about it, friends. God could have chosen any means he wanted for his entrance into humanity. Since he is God, one might expect he would choose a royal entrance with pomp and circumstance, but instead he chose the most humble means imaginable. Now, why? For one thing, the fact that there was no room for him pictures what the Bible tells us elsewhere, that the world that God created has become very uninviting as a place for the Creator. But it also illustrates God's willingness to meet us where we are, sin and all. The Bible says this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is seen in this, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. There was a noble ruler in England many years ago who at times would disappear. He would travel incognito throughout the towns and villages of his kingdom. Some in the palace expressed concern for his safety, and his reply was this, I cannot rule my people until I know how they live. Jesus Christ, the ruler of the universe, stooped low in love, and he knows his people because he chose to walk among us. At 11.15 today, we're going to continue a series we've been doing for several weeks called What's the Difference? That compares and contrasts world religions and Christian denominations. And in that series, I've stated a number of times, only biblical Christianity has God coming to us where we are. All other religions are a means for you to go to God. But friends, our God knows that we can't do that. And so in love, he does for us what we could not do for ourselves. The preparation for Jesus' birth shows God's control. It shows his love. And the last thing I have in your outline is the purpose of Jesus' birth shows God's grace. God's grace. While Mary was giving birth, the Bible tells us God sent a messenger to explain the significance of this event. The explanation is all about the grace of God and how we can have a relationship with him. 
We see this in the people to whom the messenger came, shepherds. Ordinary, common, run-of-the-mill shepherds are the first to hear the announcement of the Savior's birth. Not the scribes who are poring over the scriptures in their self-righteous pride. Not the religious leaders. The announcement was made to humble, lowly shepherds. Verse 8 says this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, why these shepherds? Well, in the region around Bethlehem, there were shepherds who were employed to tend the sheep that were used in the temple sacrifices. These shepherds looked after the sacrificial lambs used in the temple, the lambs that were slain for the sins of people week after week and year after year. And it was these shepherds who were the first to hear the announcement of the coming of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. With one sacrifice, he would take away the sin of the world. And what was the message that the angel delivered to those shepherds? Verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Note that word, Savior. The people of Israel were looking for a ruler, a warrior king, who would lead them in revolt against Rome. But God sent them a Savior. He was not what they wanted, but he was what they needed. The world did not need another advisor. The world did not need another philosopher. Heaven knows they did not need another politician. What the world needed was a savior, and what the world needed then is what the world needs today. The world needed then what we need today, a savior. And what is a savior? One who saves, one who delivers, one who rescues. But one who saves, delivers, rescues From what? Well, God sent a messenger to Joseph to explain the reason for Mary's pregnancy. And Joseph was told this, Mary will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. You see, the name that he was given, Jesus, means God saves. And the thing from which he has come to save us, deliver us, rescue us, is our sin. Jesus came to solve our greatest problem, and that greatest problem is sin. Sin separates us from the God who made us. And friends, all of the problems that we see in our world are because people are separated from God who have gone their own way, and as a result, we suffer the consequences. And we need to be rescued, delivered, saved from sin. We have conflict inside and outside ourselves. In other words, we are not at peace. Not at peace within ourselves, not at peace with others, because we're not at peace with God. Sin has separated us from God, but he has come to do something about it. The last part of verse 14 tells us that Jesus came on Christmas so that he could give, now notice verse 14, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So who are these people who have peace Because God's favor rests on them. Is that everybody? Is everybody automatically on good terms with God because of that first Christmas? Not quite. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says as well that the wages of that sin is death. We all die 
physically because of sin, but we are also dead spiritually because of sin. Now, do you all remember the Bible story of the first sin committed by humanity, Adam and Eve? God said to Adam and Eve, the day you sin against me by disobeying and eating of this particular tree, that very day you will die. So they ate, and yet they lived physically for many years after that. And so the question is, was God mistaken? Did, in fact, they die when they sinned against God? They died spiritually because sin is this. Sin is separation. And death, sin causes separation, and death is that separation. And they were separated from God in that moment, and so are all of us because of sin. Death is separation. Physical death is separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is separation of the individual from God. And so on whom then does God's favor rest? On everybody? Hardly. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, that's just some people. Really bad people, right? Well, that same book, that's Romans 1. You see that? Just a few chapters later in Romans 3, here's what the Bible says. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, thank you for this uplifting Christmas message. But please stay with me. I'm almost done. And it does get better. So the Bible is saying that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God. And the answer to that is yes. Then what's the remedy? How do I have peace as those people on whom God's favor rests? What hoops do I jump through? How much money do I give? What good works do I do? Which church do I join? How do we, who are separated from God, have his favor rest on us and have peace with him? And here's what the Bible says. Through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I'm saved. That's how I'm delivered. That's how I'm rescued. By faith in him and not by what I do? Absolutely, and thanks be to God. The Bible says this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So when the Bible says that this relationship with God, as we are saved, delivered, and rescued from our separation from him because of sin, this faith, it comes through faith, and this faith is, as I've told you many times, the same thing as believing. So when the Bible says through faith, it is through believing. Same word in your New Testament, faith and believing. And what is it that I'm to believe? What is it that you are to believe? You believe that Jesus has come and died for your sins. You believe that you need him to save you, to rescue you, to deliver you. You believe that he is Christ the Lord, as the angel said, and you give your life to him. The Bible says this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The Bible says everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The greatest Christmas you could ever have would be for you to be saved, rescued, delivered on this Christmas 2014. It's the purpose for which Jesus came, to save his people from their sins. And so what do I do now? What do you do now? You realize that you are a sinner. You recognize that Christ died on the cross for you. That was the purpose for that first Christmas. That was, that was the purpose for his mission on earth. And then you repent of your sin, and that word repent just means, Lord, I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way and not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. And you do that by calling on the name of the Lord. Now, we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And as we do, I encourage every person who came into this room not knowing what Christmas was all about. You now know what Christmas is really about. It is about God and a God who loves you and is gracious toward you such that he has done for you what you could not do for yourself in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that you know what Christmas is really about, you must respond. You must receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. So when we bow and pray in just a moment, from your heart to God in your own words, no magic formula, that's a sample prayer on the screen. But it's from your heart to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I believe that you, God, came to earth to save me, to rescue me. I need to be delivered from my sin. And so I ask you to receive me. And I want to follow you with my life. And those of you who have done that, as I did at the age of 19, I encourage you as we bow and pray to thank the Lord for that first Christmas and the difference that it's made in our lives and the difference that it will make for eternity. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for the blessings of this special Lord's Day in anticipation of the celebration of the blessed event of Christmas. Lord, we thank you for telling us what Christmas is and your design for it in coming to earth, God the Son, to become man, lowering, your, lowering yourself to our level, becoming like us, taking our sin upon yourself so that we could be rescued, delivered, saved. Thank you, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be people then who celebrate Christmas in light of the truth that you have given us in your word about what it is. Help us to be people who are ever thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live that way. And Lord, I pray for those who came into this room not knowing who Jesus is and what he has done and the significance of it. They've heard the gospel, the good news, that you've done what they could not. And I ask you to reach into their heart now by your spirit and draw them out of the world into yourself. Cause them to see their need of the Savior and to embrace the message that's centered on him. We pray that you will change them from the inside out as you are changing us, your people, from the inside out. Lord, we thank you. We love you because you have first loved us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.